Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Greg Pasternak, Professor of Hydrology and Director of the Pasternak Lab at UC Davis. His research focuses on water management, looking at the impacts of human activities on watersheds and the best practices for river restoration. In this episode, we discuss the role of hydrology, geomorphology, and ecohydraulics in studying and understanding the interactions between water and the environment. In addition, we touch upon the societal and individual decisions that impact the quality and availability of water, highlighting the critical issue of water usage in agriculture. Professor Pasternak shows the value of water sciences and encourages students to be better environmental stewards. We hope you enjoy. So we'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How'd you get to Davis and what got you interested in ecohydraulics? Thanks. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I didn't end up where I thought I would or where my high school friends thought I would, but I think I ended up where I was meant to be. And so I'll explain that. So, you know, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area and, you know, during the Cold War. And I think a lot of us, oh, we'll just go work at the CIA or FBI or, you know, some of the industries around Washington, D.C. I mean, today it's like who thinks that they want to go work at the FBI, right? But I mean, that was like, you know, when you're growing up in Washington, you're driving by Langley all the time and stuff. Um, But I also grew up right on the Potomac River, which is a gorgeous river. And I grew up at a time when we really were just seeing benefits from the changes from the environmental movement. And specifically, like the Potomac River previously had been somewhat industrialized from mining operations and its headwaters and had been quite dirty, uh, also just from the urbanization. And it became quite clean. So by the time, like in the mid-70s and early 80s, I was out kayaking on the river almost every day through my childhood. And I had no idea that that I was enjoying that benefit. So I I grew up on a river. And uh, when I got to college, I went to do a liberal arts education at Wesleyan University. And I just took a variety of classes, like elements of world musicianship, witchcraft in medieval Europe, and and psychology. And then I tell, let's just take an intro to geology class and see what that's all about. And as that unfolded, it really resonated with my beliefs and upbringing and kind of led me into a path towards working on the environment and ultimately to a job here at Davis. And then did you value so much the liberal arts education from your like college days? Do you ever try to bring that into the classroom with your own classes? I mean, absolutely. From day one as a professor here, I have tried to replicate what I saw as the best practices at Wesleyan as a professor here at UC Davis. I mean, I should say like I did my master's at UC Berkeley and my PhD at Johns Hopkins. So I I have experienced other kinds of university settings, but I, for the most part, what I saw at Wesleyan was just, you know, a lot better with how the teaching was being done. And some of those things were really trying to instill critical thinking through the kinds of um, content that I curated and how I engage students with activities, um, you know, trying to avoid multiple choice questions for a long time. Um, also, uh, the UC Davis has some kind of honor code and expectations, but it's not the same culture as it was at Wesleyan. And so I tried to bring the values of like, hey, I'm here as your shepherd. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not here to just check the box and you did this homework, you did that homework. Like, let's 
learn together. I've curated all this material for you. Let's work through it together. And over time, my teaching has gone more and more in that direction of like, not a top-down teaching environment, but more of like, here's what I've curated, hmm. you know? And so you consume what you want to consume and learn. It's your education. But still, there is some amount of like the police part of like <laughs> being a, a teacher that you kind of can't avoid either. Certainly. Um, but I think the strength of the liberal arts education has always been and remains that it's just such great exercise for the brain to think about... Um, a diversity of big questions. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a cousin who's a, a history professor at West, Western Washington University, coincidentally. And, you know, sometimes it's sort of jealous, like, oh, man, you get to talk about all the big questions of history and, you know, ancient civilizations. It's like, okay, well, what are some of the big questions that I could think about? Like, if I was going to try to inspire people with the environment, what, what would we want to do? And so trying to bring that into the classroom, I think that's what the liberal arts is about. It's like trying to get the underlying issues, not just trying to look at immediate technical, how do you calculate this or whatever. Mm -hmm. Certainly. That's a very beautiful message. And I'm curious to see, did you feel like when you were at Wesleyan that your relationship, your immediate relationship with professors was just innately more, I guess, like willing to conversate? compared to at Davis, where it seems like sometimes, like you said, it is like a policing force and students don't always feel as receptive to go up. You know, I, I think that each department or major at Davis can have a very unique culture. And some have a very strong community culture that I think is is very powerful and effective. And and I mean, it's the same even at Wesleyan. There are some departments, of course, when you have a department that's of a certain size, it's just hard to instill the same kind of things that 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 could could go on in a small ma major. I, I was the major advisor here at Davis for the hydrology major, which is a mm -hmm. very small major, you know, anywhere from eight to twenty five students at a time. Wow. And you know, for that, I mean, we we could we could order catering from Alibaba, <laughs> you know, and 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 have have like everybody get together and hang out, and I mean, just the camaraderie that can take place when you're in a smaller unit if everybody you know shares that the cultural value of doing that is very powerful and i think at wesleyan um all of the units that i was involved in were you know a small to medium size that uh where a real effort was made to do that i'll give you an example at graduation Okay, here it is, all of us. So, I mean, you know, Westland has about, uh, at the time, like 35 to 4,000 undergrads and about 1,000 masters or PhD students. And um, there's a hill, and then the, there's the football field and all the beautiful brownstone buildings. And then there's the backside of the hill. So, all of us graduating were on the backside of the hill. As we came around to the front side of the hill, all lined up, there were two rows of professors. And they were all clapping and we walked through as the professors around us clapped for us all mm -hmm. the way through down to the stage. Like that just was such a heartwarming and meaningful experience. And I mean, it's, it's hot in June in Connecticut. It's not um, quite as, as difficult as it can be here in the middle of June, but I mean, it, you know, the sense of belonging and, and camaraderie and, and I think also, uh, 
times have just changed in some ways, but you know, the idea of like being invited over to a professor's house as a group and hanging out more, um, more individual interaction was very, um, common. And, and in the, in the, you know, in the nineties, we were already doing a lot of first name basis with professor, which is now the norm. Mm -hmm. So there, there, there was a closeness that's there. And I think there are professors here who try to bring those same values, have that same passion. So I, you know, I don't want to like <clears throat> be particularly negative about Davis per se, but you know, if you've experienced or seen graduation, you know, it's a quite different experience here. Yeah. My prep school commencement was the exact same thing. I went to Choate down the, oh, down, yeah. right down. Yeah. <laughs> I figured you would. But, yeah. No, it's, there's a certain level of connectedness, like you were saying, that's very valuable at times. And when we were preparing for the interview, we saw that in your bio, in your time as an undergrad, you traveled a lot. Could you tell us about your trip to Indonesia and kind of how that shaped your trajectory? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think one of the other powerful things about a, a small school is that of all of the resources that exist there, um, because there isn't as much demand, then there's more accessibility. And so, you know, professors use undergraduates to do a lot more or facilities that exist are more open. And that just opened a lot of doors. And so uh, one of the things that I had the opportunity to do is that a, a professor who is a geochemist um, was like, oh, Greg, you know, OK, would you like to do some research this summer? Well, option one, uh, we can stay here in Connecticut and you can go to the salt marshes and play in the mud and, you know, pick out some bugs and stuff. It's like, hmm, okay, what's plan B? Oh, we could go to Indonesia and climb a volcano and study the what's inside the volcano. I'm like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're off to the volcano, which was a profound and challenging and life-altering experience. Um, it's still to this day, like, I'll have dreams about my experience on that volcano. And, um the uh, the the volcano there is called Kelimutu. Um, it's on the island of Flores, and um, it's really a beautiful volcano. But just it is incredibly challenging. I mean, so basically, I mean, the professor was was like, "Okay, Greg, like you figure this out. You have like six months before we go. Like, figure out what are we doing? You know, how do we do it? What are we going to do?" And like, you know, I mean. Obviously, he was assisting me. We were working together, but it was like a huge burden, but also an exciting opportunity. And everything you you put on paper that you think, here's how it's going to go, like none of that is going to work. <laughs> and then it's just about, okay, you know, what can I, what do I have in my chest here that I brought? You know, I carry a chest full of stuff. Like, what do we have that is going to make this all work? You know? And so it was the professor, myself. There were two other undergrads who came to help out, and then there were two or three um, local scientists there from the Volcanology Institute, and uh, you know we we had just this profound experience because it's a um, the crater. There were three craters in the volcano, and uh, if you look up Kelimutu like on, on Google Earth, it's it's worth the time to, to take a look. And the craters are like straight down. Like if imagine if you had an empty soup can and you're standing on the rim and you're looking down this hole, it's like 200 meters or so or whatever to the water surface, uh, at which time you have potentially boiling acid 
And then it's another, you know, I don't know, 75, 200 meters from there down to the bottom of the lake. There's each lake is different. Um, and you know, if you fall in, you're dead one way or the other, not so pleasant. Um, (laughs) and so we had to figure out how are we going to get bottles down into that water sample it at different depths and, and, you know, uh, and bring them back up. And we had brought with us, um, a variety of technologies to try to do that. Nothing really high tech, um, (laughs) because, you know, you're going to a faraway land with limited, uh, weight that you can carry and resources. And, you know, we're not going, it's not like super high tech. I mean, you know, we didn't have like the military supporting us (laughs) or whatever. We're just trying to go and on the, on the fly, get some stuff. And so a lot of just making, making things up, um, a lot of tinkering and, um, it kind of just, led to my thinking about science in a lot of ways is a tinkering process, which is true for any, anything that's like invention related. When you have to create something, you you just have to say, well, I'll try this or try that. But it's just way more pressure when you've flown halfway around the world and you're, you know, like half the people are sick and, you know, you're, you're trying to like figure it out on the fly on, on a volcano. So anyway, but it was, it was a great experience. I think the biggest lesson I got out of that is just, um, you know, you try to prepare as much as you can. You try to think of all the ways things can go wrong. Um, but you also bring enough materials that you can tinker on the fly and try to figure things out. Definitely. It seems from the professors who do a lot of field work that that is a very common theme that you can never truly fully prepare. But you talk about tinkering and we want to talk to you about how do you tinker with rivers? How are you a river doctor? Yeah. So when I was in college and I was thinking about what I was going to do after I graduate, you know, I was talking with a major professor and I said, well, I want to be a river doctor. And this is the early 90s. And he just said, well, there's no such thing. This just sounds childish. You know, it doesn't, you know, like you have to say, like, I'm going to be a hydrologist or I'm going to be a, you know, you know, something ologist. It has, has to end in ology or engineer or whatever. And uh, but that was always what was in my mind. The idea that, you know, uh, that why can't we just treat nature like a patient? And then we try to diagnose its problems and come up with solutions, you know, um, that that can help it. It just seemed to me that a medical kind of analogy is a little bit better than an engineering analogy, although it requires engineering tools at times, but not always. You know, there there may be other solutions that don't involve engineering things. Um, and so that's sort of always been in my mind. And it took a long time before I could stand up and say, I am a river doctor, you know, but it I think it kind of started to come back again when I had kids and, you know, daddy, <laughs> what do you do? And it's just, it's very easily understandable to somebody to say, yeah, I son, I'm a river doctor, you know, like that was something they could relate to because uh, my wife is also a professor in her own right. And, and she's a, a veterinarian, which, you know, you'd call an animal doctor. So we could just say, well, you know, sh- mom is an animal doctor and dad's a river doctor. Um, so that's really, you know, I, I see like my life's mission is about figuring out what are the problems we have with individual rivers and what kind of actions could we take to heal them? And I, I see myself 
it, uh, there, there may be other roles, like even with human health, you could be an epidemiologist looking at large scale patterns. You know, you could be a lawyer or politician or an economist, like trying to work on health issues at a larger scale. But somebody has to be there one river at a time doing the hard work and mindfully figuring things out. Mm-hmm. And that's where, where I feel like my role has been effective. So what is a river? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, at, at the simplest form, a river is just a, the U-shape on the surface of the earth that's been carved out by water. You know, like water f- accumulating as, as rain runs off the land surface into a large enough amount that it can literally just, you know, push the, the dirt aside and, and make a U-shaped channel and and flow down there. And then that get bigger, bigger and bigger as more water accumulates and, and you go down the hill. So, you know, all your rivers have in common that the force of gravity is, is driving something to carve them out. And most of the time that's water. Although sometimes it could be an earth flow of like, you know, landslide debris or something else. Mm-hmm. But generally, you know, yeah, rivers carry water and materials from highlands to lowlands. Yeah. And then could you define some of the general terms for us of hydrology, Geo, geomorphology and eco-hydraulics. Like. <laughs> well, that's so funny because like, I, I was a first year student and I, after I took my first geology class, I went to the professor and I was like, okay, yeah, this is interesting. I like to take something else. And I, and he, and I said, well, what's, what is there? And he's like, yeah, looking at the course catalog and he's like, well, there's a course called geomorphology and I'm like, geomorpho what I mean, this is <laughs> like, what kind of word is that? And what does that mean? And, and yet it, yeah, and and so, but basically, everything begins with the fact that the Earth's landscapes change. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times we may not see them change. Sometimes we do, and it can be quite shocking with landslides and floods. But the landscapes are changing, and so a geomorphologist tries to understand how it's changing, why is it changing, and what are the significance of those changes. Um, and then on Earth, water is one of the dominant mechanisms. I mean, if you're in a desert, maybe it's wind. If you're in the far north or south, it's glaciers. But for most of the earth, water is one of, if not the most important ways in which the land gets changed. And so hydrology is the study of how water flows around. You know, where is it stored? Where does it go? <clears throat> and then um, ecohydraulics deals with the mechanisms of how biota is intertwined with all of these earth processes and water processes. So you know, life is, you know, water and life are quintessentially defining of earth. And so, um, yeah, so the, you know, that we can see on the earth's surface, how things are changing, then, um, organisms have adapted to that. And so it's all that intertwining. That's interesting to me. And then would you say you are putting, like you are in every one of those buckets? Well, that's, I think, yeah, that's, that's the thing that I, I think has changed over time that, Historically, you would be an ecologist or, you know, an engineer or a geologist um, or a lawyer. And now there's a much greater understanding that if we don't look at something from um, different perspectives, like multicultural perspectives or, you know, um, the perspective of who is struggling with a problem, then we can't get to a solution because solutions usually are complex. They're not simple. They're not obvious, you know? And so you have to be able to cross those traditional 
boundaries. And that's where the tinkering thing sort of comes into play because what, and, and it's a funny because a lot of who we are ends up coming back to our parents and our upbringing too. You know, it's not like the training that I had, but you know, when I was a kid, my dad was the kind of person who would try to just tinker with things like, oh, we, we have some some little problem. Oh, I'll just make something, you know, and uh, it was never particularly pretty and elegant, but it worked. And I, I think that is still applies here. It's just like I said, oh, well, what is the problem we're trying to solve or what is the thing that the, the river, what is its problem? Now, if you tell me, oh, I've got to go learn about whatever the issue is, it's so it's a sociological issue or it's an engineering issue or it's a geological issue. Whatever it is that we have to pull in uh, is that mindset of being problem-oriented. The risk of this approach is that you could become what some might call a dilettante. In other words, you could be like a pretender almost, you know, like, you know, you think you know, but you don't, haven't really studied anything intensely enough to really understand how that works. Do you mm -hmm. know physics? Do you know chemistry? You can't know everything. No one is the avatar of everything, right? Um, yeah, you know, you, you can be a firebender or an earthbender, but you can't, only one person out there could be the avatar and it's not me. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's an extra burden to try to learn things deep enough to understand them, but also um, there are trade-offs there of finding the right balance of being a generalist and being a specialist that each person sort of has to work through. Certainly. Um, I wouldn't say like, I, I'm, I'm not the, the best at understanding the details of how fluids flow on earth. You know, I'm not a computational fluid mechanicist at some fundamental level, you know, but I use those tools mm -hmm. or geology or other aspects of engineering or ecology, you know? Certainly. So with that in mind, do a lot of these projects tend to be interdisciplinary when you're working with a given river or a given yeah. project? Yeah. I mean, the most of the time, the problems are, I mean, that usually what people care about is how are things affecting some segment of society, you know, like the people part of it, and then some organism or some set of organisms. Nobody's like, boy, that rock sure looks unhappy. You know, we better <laughs> do something to protect the rock, right? I mean, it's, you know, but it, but if it's like there's some charismatic fish or the beavers, um, you know, or what, whatever, uh, whatever the organisms are, bird. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think it's valuable to focus on both humans and biota. Um, I think some people have also made the case that we do have to be mindful of the dirt and the rocks in their own right too, because for example, the world has a massive shortage of sand. Um, it's a huge problem for the future of civilization because we haven't taken care of that resource. Um, so, I mean, you know, you can overuse or ruin any anything, whether you could consider it a quote resource or it is more of like a living entity with rights of its own to care about. And what are some examples of water management in everyday life? Yeah, right. You know, so much of, of what goes on inside, we, we don't have to know about it. It mm -hmm. just has to work, you know, and, and water is one of those things. Like for the most part, if we turn on our faucets, it works. Um, for whatever reason, people have been kind of conned into buying bottled water, myself included. But, you know, we have a great water system. You, you know, you can pretty much just drink the water out of the faucet. 
Um, but so much, there's so many things that society has made decisions that we as individuals aren't aware of about all kinds of things. And water is one of those things. So what is the quality of the water that we, that we drink or that we go and swim and recreate in, um, you know, what, of course, having water available in the first place, uh, when, if you have a house, where did, where is that water supply? Who's paying for it? I mean, here in Davis, we went through a big debate, I think around 2015 about getting new water supplies that have been extraordinarily expensive because decisions were taken by past generations to not participate in other water supply opportunities that could have been done at a much lower cost if they'd been taken. So there's a lot of things behind the scenes. And then of course, water at an international level, conflict between countries or states. You know, we see that in California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, like, you know, fighting over water. But then what about Mexico? Like, do they get any water from whatever's coming from North America or, you know, and, and other countries as well. But on a day-to-day basis, most people, you know, if if they're turning on their faucet and they expect or they're buying bottled water, or they're trusting that that water is safe. It may or may not be. But but then it's the unexpected. It's the Hurricane Katrina or like this winter we've had a, uh, yeah. in 2023, we've had a lot of flooding in, in California. And then we've had landslides. Um, a lot of homes have been ruined. And, you know, it's, it's sort of when these disasters strike that, um, you know, reality is imposed on people and you sort of just assumptions that were made that, you know, People don't say they don't want big government, but then the minute something goes wrong, they sort of expected that government wouldn't would be there for them, mm-hmm. which then only makes them want a smaller government, which then when something else goes wrong, makes them unhappy even more and it's sort of a cycle. Yeah. And then with this winter as an example, are we kind of through like the largest part of the snow melt? Are we haven't even seen it yet? Do you think there's going to be more flooding issues coming from the snow melt particularly, mm-hmm. or is that majority just caused by all the rain? You know, I haven't kept up with where we are on the snowpack at mm-hmm. this at this point, but I, you know, for the I, what the last time I checked, because I was interviewed for the news like a month ago or so, and as the snow melt was getting underway in early May, and what I saw is that for the northern northern part of the state, there really isn't a concern of flooding. Like there's still storage capacity in the reservoirs, and even when they get full, the, to release from those reservoirs, for most of them, there's not an issue. It was really the southern Sierras that had a really big snowpack. And as well, a lot of flooding in the San Joaquin Valley mm-hmm. that was already overwhelming the infrastructure that was there. Um, I mean, the you know the valley was largely a wetland historically. It was meant to have water spread all over the place, okay. and that's really hard to stop. So there's you know uh, I, I've had people in the mountains send me videos. The rivers are flowing clear; they're cold. But there aren't giant tree trunks coming down for the most part, you know, like big boulders washing around. I mean, it's, it's especially for the northern half of the state, it's, um, it's a normal situation. That's good to hear. And then overall, do you think we are managing our water correctly? Maybe focusing a bit more on the rivers in cities or our tap water, like those two, I feel like are a bit more tangible for people. Yeah. Well, let's look at it. I always like to look at things from the perspective of civilization first. And, you know, 
in general, I think individuals behave very similarly the way that societies behave or civilizations behave. And that is that you don't worry about a resource if it isn't limited. You just use it. And, you know, you, you don't worry about it. You brush your teeth. You leave the water running. Why not? I mean, it's there. It's, it costs so little. Just whatever. Uh, but when something becomes extremely scarce, then then things really start to change and how you manage it. You know, if you're living on a, on a desert island all alone, suddenly a rubber band could be, you know, worth like a diamond, you know? So, um, you know, in California, from everything that I've seen, we have a tremendous amount of resilience to change if we so choose or if um, the citizens pass laws that demand that we make changes. And since the majority of the water is used for agriculture, um, it's not used in cities. So, you know, I mean, uh, you could you could use no water at all, yet a nearby golf course could be blasting its sprinklers all night long or, or an almond orchard that's a, a legacy orchard. Maybe it's still flooding its ground, you know, it's, it's flooding it rather than using drip irrigation. So there are still a lot of opportunities to conserve and change um, as the economics of water change. Do you know the stat off the top of your head of how much of our water goes for agriculture in California? Well, I, I, I don't have it memorized, but I think it's around 70%. Wow. Right. Now, one thing to keep in mind about uh, water for agriculture is that there's the surface water, like we store in dams, and then we, we run through canals to, to get there. But then there's also the groundwater that's being pumped out of the ground. And the key difference is that the water that's in reservoirs is, is something we know. It's like you see, you look in your cash register and it's what's there. What's happening in the ground, most people aren't really aware of, but it's essentially, it's like mining. It's like we're playing the game Minecraft and somebody's dug down there and you've dug out all the diamonds and coal and there's, there's just a bunch of rock left. And so the, the problem is that when they take water out of the ground, on human time scales, it's almost irreversible. I mean, you could pump some amount of water back down in there, but we've we've mined out, like, you know, we have mined water out of the ground to produce almonds to send around the world, right? So it's, most of that production is not serving us in California. It's serving the world markets by a one-way transfer, by taking our valuable limited water resource and turning it into a food product that goes elsewhere, never to return. So that's a very big difference between the surface water reservoirs and the groundwater reservoirs. And so like, you know, a lot of the water we're using for municipalities are coming from surface water reservoirs. Although um, for those, that's for the major municipalities, but still many people throughout California are reliant on wells because they're just, there are no pipes and infrastructure that's sending them clean water. So they just are pumping whatever they can out of the ground too. And then when we're thinking about groundwater, how well are we able to track its current levels? Mm -hmm. And then also if I don't really have much of an understanding, do we, should we think about it as like a underwater lake that's there for across the whole state or how many of the different ways is it broken up? Yeah. Well, um, 
the way to, I, I, you know, if I was going to try to make an analogy is that you have, imagine a stack of sponges. Mm. So you just piled up a whole bunch of sponges in a stack, like a sandwich. And then each sponge is made out of a different material and it holds a different amount of water. So it's, it's not like a, an open lake, like a journey to the center of the earth and you, there's some dinosaurs down there, <laughs> whatever, in, in the water. It's like you just have these layers of a sandwich some have more water, some have no water. And we don't often know where all those are. I mean, it's it's like an art form and an expertise to be able to like drill a test hole down and try to find <clears throat> find water down there. And then the water has to be the right quality and the right pressure. So it's a little bit more complicated, but there, you know, I mean, it was um, transformative to the state of California and its economy when groundwater began to be used. Because in the 1800s, the state started off as a cattle-based economy. You know, it's Spanish cattle. Cattle were so strong, they could fight off wolves and bears. You know, they had a chance um, until the 1850s. And so they, they were really hardy animals and they were harvested on these very large ranches. And then ox pulled carts would bring the, the hides to the main ports and places like Monterey and San Francisco. And massive number of hides were removed from the state um, in a three-way trade between Boston, the you know, Asia and California. It's a pretty interesting story with all that trade. But so but we were a dry land economy. Like they didn't know, you know, they, they didn't know. So there were some crops that people grow, but I mean, uh, people from 1769 until, you know, until like 1870 or so were primarily a dry land economy reliant on the cattle. Once we had the steam engine pumping up lots of water in California, which really came into effect in the late 18, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, increasing more and more, then now we changed over to irrigated agriculture. And that fundamentally changed everything about how our state functions to this day. Wow, that's fascinating. Had no idea. Yeah. Are there any cases in California, or I guess in the US, where using desalination facilities is common? It's not common in the U.S., but in California, there are some desalinization. And then in Israel, there's also some desalinization. Um, I mean, so desalinization takes a lot of energy in order to do. And it is being done in uh, some places. Yeah, so, you, you, yeah, like you're, you're trading energy for water. I mean, it's best to start off by um, conserve where you can reuse dirty water into other places that don't need that top level of water. Like e even, you know, at my house, the same water that comes to my house is used for irrigating my landscape as, as what we're drinking, but that isn't really necessary. We could be using lower quality water for the irrigation if it was separate from the drinking water. So I think there's a lot more that we could do, but there are certainly places where desalinization is an option. You just have to remember, what do you do with all the sludge that you produce? You know, I mean, it's, that's could usually co contaminated with all kinds of you know, heavy metals or other contaminants. So now you have a toxic waste you have to dispose of and in, in very large quantities. Yeah. And then when we're thinking about rivers as a whole, what makes for a good, healthy river? Yeah, well, it, you know, s rivers ha have some general things in common, but they're they're often 
quite different. I mean, I think first thing is what's the chemistry of what's going on? So, you know, the pollution level of how much stuff humans have put into that river. That's heavy metals, that's organic, you know, herbicides, pesticides. Um, and so e even caffeine, I mean, there was a study done in like Boston Harbor and Baltimore Harbor showing like massive amounts of caffeine in the water and chemicals from way makeup and microplastics. I mean, it's just this massive amount. So first of all, like, is the water substantially clean to su support a food web? Mm. Are there from small plants to like small animals to eat the small plants and then increasing size? Do you have a, a food web that's alive and can survive given the, the chemistry of the water? So those would be two parts of it. And then the part that's harder for people to appreciate is the physical side of it, that a river, almost like a person, it kind of has to be free. It, you know, it needs to have free to receive water and have high flows and low flows. It needs to be free to alter the channel and move around, make floodplains. You know, a lot of the very productive farmlands we have are only productive because of thousands of years of rivers moving around, depositing nutrient-rich fine sediment, you know, and, and so when you lock them in place and, you know, imprison them so that they can't do their normal functioning physically, then they won't provide what we need either. Certainly. And how easy is it to transition? Like, let's say you're studying a given river in California. Are a lot of those principles easily carried over across the world or are there different distinctions of rivers? Well, that, yeah, it's it's a really important question. So some things, of course, are universal. Gravity, right? I mean, wherever you go, water flows downhill. I, I don't know. Some people claim some places uh, water flows uphill. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, uh, water flows downhill. And so, you know, from areas of high pressure to low pressure, um, there you can make a fluid mechanics weird things happen. But you know, because there are the general laws of physics, then those hold everywhere. But still, every river is peculiar because of the local conditions that are there, like the the type of rock that's there or geological structures. Like if you go to Cash Creek here, so Cash Creek is a is a stream to the northwest of Davis, mm -hmm. and if if you go, it's in Cape Valley, and then you go up into that valley and you go up into the canyon, you'll see that there are ridges of rock running straight down the river vertically. It's like take a sponge and turn it vertical and have it run right down the middle of the river. It's like really bizarre. But then as the river meanders, sometimes they're cutting across and they create waterfalls and sometimes they're aligned with the river. Like that kind of geological structural control of a river makes it unique and creates different opportunities and, and challenges for management. So I mean, there are general principles like um, this winter I was teaching a class for the first time formally as, as a class, uh, ESM 125 River Conservation. And I started off with, uh, you know, looking at some laws and practices. But as the class moved on, I started, you know, let me do something very practical here. And I just voluntarily took this class on a field trip if they wanted to go. We went uh, around, we started in San Francisco and worked our way north around the bay. And we just went to rivers and I was like, what do you see here? Let's just work through it. And so like the same strategy, you can start off with the same kinds of questions for all rivers and say, yeah, what, where is the water coming from? What is the sediment supply? What do I see when I look at this river? But you also just have to be open to the 
fact that a humans have changed just about everything. So where where are those human impacts on the system? Don't assume what you're looking at is natural. And then B, what are the unique things here? What are the assumptions about my training that I'm bringing to this? And as an example, some parts of the world, you know, especially in the north, but also in far south southern America, um, are heavily glacier glacier dominated. And uh, my very first postdoc was from Canada. And ever he'd go here, it's like, oh, the glaciers did this. And the glaciers was like, no, 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 that, that, that wasn't a glacier thing here, you know? Like, so the lens of like what his training was in was driving his thinking. And then conversely, if I go to somewhere that's glacier and I haven't thought about it, I might misunderstand that entirely. Or like I spent a sabbatical year in Australia and it has, you know, just these vast flat landscapes that are very different. Like, so, yeah, so you have to be mindful to not bring your assumptions. And isn't that true in so many of the things in life? Like it's, it's no different with rivers. And is that what it means for your research to be like practical and problem driven versus principle or like driven? I mean, it is in the sense that we have to start, start with no assumptions when you, when I go to a place. So the first thing when I do, when I, when I go to a river, I haven't been to before. I have nothing to say. What do I know? I have to just start experiencing the river, get a feel for it understand what the problems are at that place. First, what are people telling me? You know, are there indigenous people who have insights about what's going on there? Are there people who've been living there for a long time? What do they, what do they think? And, um, start bringing those different narratives together, interpreting them, and then start bringing the science to bear on it. So, um, don't start by just saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to assume a trapezoidal channel and apply this formula and, you know, use that graph. I mean, no, you know, it's like, let the story tell, let the river tell me what its story is. And then I've got to change my math or biology to fit its story, not the other way. Could you talk about some of the science that you do bring to these problems when, once you've had the chance to analyze and get feedback from the locals? Like, is that where software is like river builder come into play? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of, when you take a science and you bring it to real world problems, inevitably there's an expert basis to things, you know, you're, you're taking your training and that's one of the values of going to college and going to grad school is like, you know, you're getting training, you become an expert and that has value and people value that. And that's what you essentially monetize in your career, right? And it's like, you are an expert in something. So you, you're bringing that expert holistically. But I've also always felt, you know, you get somebody where they've had their whole career and they maybe they're one of the best in the world at something. And then eventually they're going to pass on and that's lost. So I think that the, the quantitative approach in science and the software-based tools that apply quantitative methods, the value there is trying to take expert capabilities and bring them down to people who have the critical thinking to understand, but don't have that technical expertise to have made their up all, all their own decisions. And so much of what's happened in the last 20 years in our society is all about that from this very podcast. I mean, like, you know, None of us have to be, you know, sound engineers or video uh, video producers and engineers and cinematographers. We're all producing video. All these technologies, that is, I think, one of the uh, great advancements of the information age is taking very complex things, breaking them down quantitatively, producing tools that 
that people can use. And so that's what we try to do. So throughout my career, even on the volcanoes, we've tried to produce software that you can use to, to solve problems. And so for rivers, we, we do have a, a set of, of those tools. And then is your biggest goal being able to teach these, your master students or undergraduates who are working for you how to think critically at a larger scale and then just apply these different tools when the problem suits it? So for the master's and PhD students, the first thing is I want them to create new tools. Like I want them to identify a new problem that we haven't worked on yet. Uh, you know, uh, could be, hey, we haven't worked on uh, this vegetation or we haven't worked on beavers or turtles. Like find something that we haven't applied our, our way of doing things to and then let's try that and make a tool for that. And mm -hmm. especially, I mean, I think, I think especially, it's really for me, it started more like 2008, 2009. Before that, I was helping river managers on a river by river basis. And we were making some tools, but it was still at a smaller scale. But it really started to change uh, as technology and remote sensing opened the opportunity to look at bigger scales. And then it's just sort of exploded since 2017 now where programming, you know, most people in my lab group are doing coding as part of what they do. You know, I mean, and it, it's a challenge because... Um, across all of all, all of our experiences now, like being able to code is becoming a fundamental language, you know, like yeah. to, to be able to be productive. It's not necessarily what we set out to do. Like someone sets out to study rivers, but then they partly have to learn how to code is, as one of those things. So anyway, but for your point, so a master's and PhD students, like their goal is to learn, you know, as becoming an expert, but creating a new tool that they're contributing and then they move on and then they're an expert of all the tools that we have. And then are those tools public facing? Yeah. So, um, you know, all of our stuff is free in the public domain, open source. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert in computer management systems, but we generally, you know, just put it on the internet, either through my website or GitHub or other, other venues. So, anybody can use them. Now, the challenge is that uh, throughout the sciences, like we're not alone. Many, many people are producing many, many codes. We're all the scientists, not computer coders. So there's a wide range of information about how do you use it? And just what if there's bugs in that stuff, right? So when you have things that are academic and are not monetized, then it's hard to get the funding to put the level of detail to make it as good as like a commercial product that you could find off the shelf. Certainly. But there's a lot of tools that are out there. That's good. Are there any commercial alternatives that exist? For the things that we do, there aren't. No, no. And then you briefly mentioned it earlier about the remote sensing, how that started to change the field. Could you describe what some of those changes are and kind of the direction that it's heading? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the the first five years of my career, I spent a lot of time outside on the rivers. You know, I'd go out with my students and we'd be mapping a river and we, you know, we'd be, we'd, we'd get, you know, you know, 50 to a hundred meters down the river. We've mapped in great detail. And it's like, oh my God, you know, like I've done like 50 meters. How am I going to do 5,000 kilometers? Like, Whoa. you know, <laughs> right. And so, but what has changed is now these new laser-based tools. So like, you know, you can fly in an airplane or 
be in a satellite and you can shoot a laser down to the ground, just like you're like a laser pointer, you know, red or green or whatever color. And um, that laser will hit the ground, it will reflect back and it'll provide information about what's there. And so this is, this is called LIDAR, light detection mm -hmm. and ranging. Um, it's in a lot of products we have, you yeah. know, I think some of our phones or, you know, virtual reality sets, like they have these, they're using them. They're just not necessarily making accessible to you. The connect was another example could do that. Um, so these tools allow us to map in great detail, but still you just get this massive amount of data. So how do you process it? So there's a lot of tools then that have to be developed to to figure out how to how to take advantage of that the the fundamental questions about rivers haven't changed but what's changed is our ability to answer them in great detail and a great spatial scale that we couldn't ever do before and then when you're looking forward into the future of water management what are some of the biggest issues you think maybe the US is going going to experience and have to tackle yeah, I mean, I, I think like uh, a, a lot of the problems are not technical. They are, you know, societal, like, you know, we've talked about earlier. I mean, still conservation, interstate issues. But I, I still would bristle if anyone were to allege that, you know, water is a solved technical problem. It's, it's not a solved technical problem. Like the, we still can't accurately predict when it's going to rain more than 10 days in advance. And, and even when they say it's going to start raining tomorrow at five o'clock and then it doesn't, it doesn't, or it starts raining at midnight, you know, like it's still everything from the atmospheric science and the oceans and uh, rivers. There's still a lot that, that needs to be figured out and uh, investment in science is, you know, a, a real challenge investment in universities is a big challenge, but I, I, I think that, so overall, what I believe based on my professional experience is that the earth is undergoing systemic ecological collapse. Climate change is just a symptom of this. It's not the defining problem of our times. It's the, maybe the most important symptom, but it is not the illness. The illness is that systemically humans have changed so many things on earth at such scale everywhere that lots of things, like all the large predators on earth have been removed. And what are those consequences? I mean, things as simple as like pigs used to eat seeds and then and then they would wander off and then they would poop the pit seed out and all the nutrients in the seed and it would grow a new tree like the whole structure of our forests have changed and and water is part of that too that the the lack of availability of water from how we've used it um is is all all taking place you know the fragmentation of habitats around the earth including in rivers um the, like I, the, the fact that our earth is running out of sand and, and high quality soil. Sand is a funny thing. Like you, you have all these deserts. You think, oh, how could we possibly run out of sand? Well, but the problem is that deserts have rounded sand. And uh, when something is round, it just slips off, you know, it just rolls away. But when you go to a beach on the coast, the sand there is not round, it's angular. And so those bits of sand all interlock to each other. And that's the kind of sand that's needed to make cement. So we're, we're almost, we're running out of sand around the earth. And that why, you know, of course, where does sand come from? It comes from the rivers, right? The rivers have eroded that material and carried them down to the coast. So it's, these are holistic problems where the whole earth is undergoing systemic ecological collapse. And so 
if one accepts that or thinks that's a possibility, then um, some number of people have to be involved in trying to stop that. And part of that is finding technical solutions. And part of that is, is working on societal solution. Do you think part of that societal solution is going to come from new investment? And along with that, in your career, have you seen an increase in investments in more climate-focused solutions? No, I mean, I, I, I mean, in the United States, um, you know, it, it's it's been the opposite. I mean, I I feel like we're living in the era of the scraps. You know, like the 1950s and 60s. Well, c- coming out of World War II. I mean, the lesson of what science could accomplish that facilitated victory in World War II led to the growth of big science. You know, o- ocean, like, why did we invest in oceanography? You know, I mean, if we spend, I don't know the exact number, but it's, last time I checked, it was like $280 million a year in the NSF budget on oceanography. We spent a similar about $280 million a year on atmospheric science hydrology or like the study of rivers, it doesn't, there's no, you know, I mean, the hydrology budget at NSF is $10 million. The last time I checked, I mean, I haven't checked, but I mean, you know, it's an order of magnitude less than, than it is for oceanography. Why? Because oceanography and atmospheric science are part of the military industrial complex, right? I mean, so, um, it's, uh, the 1950s and 50s and 60s, though, there was a huge investment in understanding rivers. Here on this campus, we had a facility where they could rebuild rivers um, at a small scale. But you could say, hey, I've got I want to build a, a dam or I want to build some facility in the state of California. And we had something called the hydraulics lab. It's still here, but it's not like it was then. And, you know, uh, and, and you could rebuild that thing as a, what we call a physical model, like, you know, almost like a, a sandbox and then you could run experiments on it. Today, we rely on computer models more, but, uh, last week I was actually in Switzerland and I visited two facilities that, you know, make ours at Davis look like a joke. <laughs> I mean, they're just stunning facilities funded by the Swiss federal Institute, one is right next to the University of Lausanne, and the other one is next to ETH Zurich. And I mean, they're remarkable facilities. And in the U.S., there are only a few universities left that have those kinds of, of facilities. One is like Utah State, um, Colorado State, to some extent. There's a few of them around, but um, there's been a dramatic deinvestment in a lot of these problems. You know, the NSF's budget as a whole um, certainly is a sizable number, but um, yeah, I, I think that a lot of us um, are just trying to fund what we can with very small amounts wherever we can get it. Yeah. Do you see a tangible benefit to those physical models versus the computer models when teaching people or experimenting? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if you know, computer models are very powerful, but of course, they only can simulate what you can program into it. And, um, Early in my career, I had an opportunity to go to uh, University of Minnesota. They're another one. They have a a physical model facility right on the Mississippi River. Mm. And I got funding where I could divert water from the Mississippi River through the building into this nine foot wide by six foot high, you know, like rectangular channel. And I built the waterfalls in there and was doing research. It was pretty cool. But, you know, you you could when you're in a physical model and you're watching it, you think, here's what I think is going to happen. Here's what I think. And then it doesn't do that. And it does something else. 
And uh, it's because the mechanisms of what the real world can do is very hard to put into a computer simulation. We have to make assumptions and trade-offs for computational time costs. Like we just just can't quite do it. So the physical model is a really useful tool, and it isn't necessarily that much more expensive compared to the labor of of you know when you have to make a complex um, computer model. That's fascinating. Yeah. Another point about it is that. Most people, if you say, well, what's the purpose of science? The purpose of science is to find out why. Why is this? Why is that? But the practice of science is really about why not? Mm. It's about trying things that no one else in the right mind would bother to do. Why not? Let's, why, let's just give it a try. And I have, to, I have to give credit where credit due. I'm stealing this to some degree from a video game. <laughs> if anyone's played Portal 2, you know what I'm talking about, Cave Johnson. <laughs> Science, is it's not about why, it's about why not. And I think that's a really important lesson because what we're supposed to do in science is try things that no one else will try, you know? Usually there's some reason for it, but like why study waterfalls? But there's a tremendous amount that we can learn from waterfalls, but it doesn't even matter. It, it's like... We should study things in nature simply because they're there, not just because they may have value to somebody down the line. Often they will anyway, but there's a lot of things like we just have uh, part of the mission is just try to understand nature and how it works. It's a beautiful message. With that in mind, what's been some of the most surprising discoveries or you know, a particular discovery you've made in your career in the spirit of just trying to understand nature, something that you might not have necessarily gone in trying to learn about? But in your research, it kind of unfolded. Right. Um, one thing that has been fortuitous, but also kind of surprising is that in some ways, organisms are really closely aligned to what the physical environment is doing. You know, I mean, I, I, I do this, I do this uh, experiment with uh, one of my classes where I, br- I go over to the store and I buy a box of donuts, a big box of donuts, and I lay them out uh, around the room and I ask them, okay, well, go pick which donut you like, you know? Um, and as, as animals ourselves, as humans, like we're very social and you can look at other organisms and also identify that um, they have a lot of social behaviors too. So there are things they might like or don't like, or they may, or are they just behaving innately? They're, they're following instinct in some way. And that's the point of the donut question is like trying to get at what is it that you really like and can an organism like something or not, or is it just following its instinct? But It's been remarkable the extent to which organisms align themselves with what what nature, you know, provides for them to do, you know. And and so we can surprisingly accurately predict where a fish is going to want to be in a river. And that predictability opens up a lot of doors to be able to successfully manage rivers, which is surprising because, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and they're like, well, you know, like, you know, a fish might want to do this or might want to do that. But in the end, I just run the computer model. It tells me, go look over there and there they are, you know, so that I have been somewhat surprised that things can be predictable. So some organisms are more specialists that probably are very predictable and some are more generalists that that are harder to predict. And, you know, humans are generalists. We're very hard to predict. <laughs> have you been it? been able to extrapolate some of the fish locations to mean, okay, that means the bears are going to be over here. Then that animal's going to be over there. Have you been able to expand That's a it? good question. You know, we haven't done that. And of course that's because nobody's asked us to. <laughs> Fair. That, yeah, that would, that would be interesting to see. 
Um, and of course that'd mean I'd also have to go put myself out where the bears are. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. It seems like water sciences, despite the fact that we use them every day, are seemingly overlooked, especially as undergraduates. Like, I don't think I know anyone in the hydrology major here at Davis. So there's only 30. Yeah. Like, well, there what not oh. now there's like eight or 10. Wow. I mean, wow. yeah. In a school of 30, <laughs> 40,000. Yeah. yeah. Right. How do you, right. How do you want to, I guess, better putting it as like, how can we get students interested from a young age to where when they are in high school or when they're in middle school, water science is kind of like looked at as this field that is more intriguing. I mean, it's, it, it's been one of the enigmas of my career. I mean, when I was the master advisor for um, the hydrology major, I got it from like eight when I started to 25. And then after I stopped, it went back down. And, and now it's, uh, you know, a decade later. Or so it's about back at eight. So, I mean, it, it, you know, it's a fundamental question. Like, for example, uh, the last time I checked, like two years ago, we have something like 35, 40 people majoring in bugs, entomology, right? Yeah. I mean, entomology, study of bugs. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with bugs. But still, like, you have to do a reality check when you say, well, why we only have eight people on campus interested specifically in water and, you know, bugs uh, or, or anything else? And um, I don't know. I mean, is it, I mean, if you just say, well, water, well, water, yeah, I drink it. I don't know. Right. I mean, there has to be something that inspires somebody to, to want to do something. I mean, if you, if you were to look at it from a financial perspective and you can say, well, gee, financially, oh, go be a doctor, go be a computer scientist. But are those, are those going to work? I mean, already like, you know, how many computer scientists have been fired, fired in the last year? But if you go into water, I mean, one of the points I make when when the inevitably want to cancel the major, which is pretty much continuously for my career, it's to say, you know, the world may not need uh, us to produce a thousand new hydrologists every year, but the 10 we produce are going to have a really big impact compared to your thousand computer scientists mm-hmm. or whatever else, you know? And so it's, it's that thing that... Um, that there is when you have a job or a career path where there is a shortage and is uh, something that is technical, so it's hard to replace by by AI or something, then it probably is more resilient for a career into the future. And, and so I think there is a practical message there that if you're looking economically at like, you know, what's a career that pays a good wage and, you know, will give me some better security into the future, then water is one of those that I think is resilient as much as anything looking ahead. But from an inspirational point of view, you know, usually it's somebody, if I read an application, it's like, oh, I was rafting on the Colorado River and the sun beamed down on me just as my paddle hit the water and I had an epiphany and I need to be a hydrologist. You know, things, things like that come to mind. Or for me, it's just, it was my way of life. Like I grew up on the Potomac River. I was like a river rat, you know, like it's just... It, it wasn't something that I, it was just part of who I was. And then when I made the connection that that, that could be a job, then, then that sort of resonated. And then as we wrap up here, do you have any parting words of advice or how to be better stewards of the environment? Well, I, you know, on one hand, people will say, you know, you just have to look into your heart individually, do, do what you can do. But at, at the same time, I really feel like the burden is more at the societal level, you know, like 
society ha- has to make decisions and pass laws and do things or what you do really, in my opinion, isn't going to make a whole lot of difference. I mean, so, you know, you, you do what you think is right, but at the same time, we need to function as a society and a democracy to sort of get anywhere. But I, I think like individually, the most important thing is just ask this question, why not? Just try the things that others don't. And that's really what I've done throughout my career is look for the contrarian thing. What are the things that people aren't looking at and doing? Nobody was going out and studying waterfalls and the different things that I've done. And 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 yet in the end, when you can do something that few others can, then society will beat a path to your door and you will be valued and you will be able to support yourself and your family. Wonderful. Thank you, Professor. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.